a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Fifty-five-year-old Barney McBride is on a mission. There's something nefarious going on in his home state of Oklahoma, and he's come to Washington, D.C. to get help. When he arrives in the Capitol on August 9th, 1922, he finds a message waiting. Be careful, it says. In spite of that warning, Barney's not afraid. He goes out that evening with a 45 caliber revolver and Bible in hand. He wants to blow off some steam at a billiards club before a long day of glad-handing politicians into helping him. But as soon as he steps out of the club that night, someone grabs him and throws a burlap sack over his head. The next day, Barney's body is found in a gutter in Maryland, naked, covered in stab wounds, and bashed bloody. Barney had been sent to D.C. on behalf of the Osage tribe because by 1922, Osage Indians were dying at an alarming rate. But with his death, a message comes through loud and clear. Stop digging. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A little over a year before Barney McBride is found stabbed to death in D.C., it's May 1921. And we are in Osage County, Oklahoma. And here is 34-year-old Molly Burkhart. She is of the Osage tribe, and she is very concerned. Even though Molly has a husband she loves, she's got two cute kids, she has a gorgeous home, and she even has housekeepers to serve her, none of that matters right now because she's so worried about her family. Her younger sister, Minnie, died just two years ago, and now her older sister, Anna Brown, is missing. No one has heard from her in days. And Molly knows that Anna likes to party. She got divorced recently, and she's, you know, she's out having fun, enjoying the company of men. Anna, TMI, but I've been there. She goes out for days at a time in towns like Whizbang, which sounds like I'm making it up. I'm not. Real name. I guess we can assume that it's a place where you whiz all day and bang all night. Um, I personally would rather go to binge rest. Osage County, Oklahoma, has transformed a lot over the past few decades. It used to be just uninterrupted prairie that is owned by the Osage Indians. But then, in the late 1800s, oil was discovered. And so suddenly, everyone wanted to be there. And these boom towns like Whizbang just spring up. And local law enforcement plays really fast and loose at the reservation. Just to give you a sense, one of the earliest police chiefs was a man who eventually headed one of the most notorious gangs in the American West, 
kind of a weird resume, um, but this combination of lawlessness and oil money seems to really attract criminals and just wild men who are now becoming the Osage tribe's neighbors. Yeah, and I don't think the Osage tribe invited these people. It feels like lawlessness found them. And keep in mind, at this time, it's the 1920s, and so prohibition is in full swing. So this is also a safe haven for a lot of bootleggers, like notorious Kelsey Morrison. And when I was first reading this, I thought, whoa, girl boss vibes. We love a lady who is coming in, selling hooch. Like, wow, love, huge fan. Nope, Kelsey's a dude. (laughs) Yes, Kelsey is in fact a dude. So the one thing I thought I could really celebrate, no, pass. Okay, back to Molly. Molly tells her husband, Ernest, that she's really worried about her sister. And he's like, I'll go over to her house and check it out. He heads over, knocks on the door, but there is no answer. And the windows are dark. It's clear that Anna's not home. And by this point, Molly's really starting to worry because where is Anna? No one has seen her in days. And the last time Molly saw her... Anna was pretty rowdy. She'd gotten kind of hammered at a luncheon that Molly and Ernest had hosted just a few days ago. The luncheon had been event-filled to say the very least. When Anna got out of the cab, she looked gorgeous, stunning. She was wearing bright red shoes, a red skirt, makeup, and she had a little alligator skin handbag. But Molly could tell, a sister always knows, that Anna was drunk. As soon as Anna walked through the door, she kicked off her gorgeous red shoes and she started throwing back some whiskey. And Molly's pissed. Look, this luncheon was already going to be stressful. Some of Ernest's relatives had come in from Texas to visit, and they're a lot. They hate that Ernest married an American Indian woman, and they are not subtle about that, which sounds like just a real fun premise for this luncheon for Molly. And on top of that, on top of the terrible in-laws, Molly and Anna's mom, Lizzie, was sick. Ernest had actually asked Anna to come over a bit early to help out Molly. You know, Anna had always been Lizzie's favorite anyhow, but because Anna showed up completely hammered, Molly had to take care of everything herself. She had to take care of her sister, her mom, and all of the guests. And Anna spends this luncheon flirting heavily with Ernest's brother, Brian. They had a little bit of history. They dated, never very serious. And when Brian asked one of the servants to dance, Anna gets pissed. And she tells him if he fools around with anybody else, she'll kill him. And when she wasn't making eyes at Brian, Anna was fighting with everyone else. So she's kind of a mean drunk. She fought with Molly. She fought with her sick mother. She even put the servants on edge. But we all know nothing ebbs uh, drunk rage like, I don't know, pizza. So I guess they get her some food and then Anna sobers up a little. Molly helps her wash up and they do exchange some kind words. They end on a nice note as this luncheon comes to a close. Those horrible Texas relatives leave and so do brothers Ernest and Brian. They're all going to a nearby town to meet an uncle of theirs, the cattle rancher William Hale. Brian Burkhart is done in a white cowboy hat um, and ever so chivalrous offers to drop Anna off on his way. 
Molly has to be relieved at this point. She gratefully accepts the help. She has to tend to her mother, Lizzie, and Anna probably wasn't mad at the arrangement either since she's been crushing on Brian the whole night. And as Anna walks out the door, she smiles back at her sister and her gold tooth just glints in the light. And that is the last time that Molly sees her sister. A week after this luncheon, and a couple of days after Molly realized Anna was missing, another family is roaming the woods in Osage County. It's a father and his young son, and they're going hunting at Three Mile Creek. The boy sees a squirrel and shoots it, and watches the squirrel tumble down the slopey ridge towards a creek. Now, his father and the guy that's there with him go to have some water, and the boy runs to go check out his squirrel. Suddenly, the men hear the boy cry, Oh, Papa! And when they look down into the ravine, they see the sun perched on a rock pointing to the decomposing body of a woman with dark hair and a red skirt. Word immediately gets out of a dead body, and the locals begin to flock around the area to see what's going on. Everyone from the local furniture store owner to the town bootleg, old Kelsey Morrison, turns out to gawk at the spectacle. Molly, Ernest, Brian, and Molly's other sister, Rita Smith, along with her husband, Bill Smith, make the slow trudge through the blackjack trees to see if it's their dear, beloved sister, Anna. Molly just prays that the body doesn't belong to her. Because if it is her, if it's Anna, that is the second sister Molly has lost. Because like we mentioned earlier, her younger sister, Minnie, died a few years ago of just a mysterious illness. She just sort of wasted away before everyone's eyes. It was horribly sad. And now it's just Molly, Rita, and Anna left. Or, I mean, that's what she hopes. When the family finally reaches the grove of trees above the creek, they see a large box. The hunters had placed the body inside so they could drag it out of the ravine. Vultures circle above and a stench radiates. The whole body is bloated and swollen. It's barely recognizable. But then they catch a glimpse of Anna's gold tooth and any hope that they had that this wasn't her fades away. Rita bursts into tears and Molly just maintains her composure. She knows she has a big responsibility now as she's now the eldest sister. A coroner's inquest is called to determine the cause of death. Now, this is a reservation in rural Oklahoma in the 1920s, so a scientific approach to policing really has yet to take hold. No one is photographing this body or the nearby tire tracks. No one's destined for fingerprints or writing up witness reports from the hunters that found her. They're not talking to the kid that shot the squirrel. No, the the sheriff just asks some locals to see if they could figure out how she died, if it was by accident or if she was murdered. The sheriff taps a few local men and the family's doctors. James and David Schoen, to carry out this arduous task. Together, they huddle over Anna's body, still in the box under a shady tree. And looking at the composition of her body, the Schoen brothers decide that she's probably been dead between five and seven days. And there's this bottle of moonshine next to where her body was found. So they're like, you know, maybe she kept partying that night. Maybe she was partying in the woods and she fell and she hit her head. And they're poking and prodding her body with sort of I don't know, primitive doctor instruments. 
One of them ends up lifting her head, and when he does, he finds a perfectly round hole. This eliminates any possibility that this was an accident. Anna Brown had been shot, execution style. As if losing a family member wasn't enough, the costs of the funeral are insane. The casket alone costs $1,450. And in today's money, that's more than $22,000. Just for the casket, $22,000. And that's typical in Osage County. There are crazy inflated prices for everything if you are in the Osage tribe. Because according to the National Archives, the Osage tribe was flush with cash. See, in the 1920s, the Osage Indians were the richest people per capita in the world. Each member was essentially a millionaire. And the national press loved to publish stories about how wealthy these American Indians in the Midwest were. And they would marvel in these articles about large houses and white servants and fancy cars. One newspaper commented, It had been stated recently that every 11th person in the United States owns a car. They do better at Osage, where nearly every Indian owns 11 cars. Ugh, it's just blatantly racist. And it's crazy because there were tons of ostentatious, mega-rich people in the early 20th century. White people, right? Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, have you heard of them? But because most white Americans thought of American Indians as poor and uncivilized, there were so much more eyes on the Osage, and that drove a lot of media attention. Mm-hmm. Jealous. The Osage were in the same boat as other American Indian tribes in that they had been systematically killed and displaced by white settlers. Their numbers dwindled from 17,000 in the late 1600s to just 3,000 by the 1800s. But they still weathered this siege better than others. After they got kicked out of Kansas in the mid-1800s, they bought land in the Midwest. They strategically were like, let's just pick the shittest place. Let's get the driest, the least farmable land. This way, maybe they'll leave us alone. Maybe they won't take it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to try to make anywhere work just so they'll get left alone. But of course, the U.S. government wasn't going to leave them alone. At the turn of the century, the government actually tries to break up the land and allot small portions of it to each Osage family and then sell off surplus. They had done this with other tribes. It was this ploy to keep the extra land and sell it. And privatizing the land meant that Oklahoma could become a state and join the union. Yeah, but the Osage, they see what's happening. They see right through this. They're like, no way. Also... We bought this land. They have a deed. So unlike a lot of tribes who are forced into this scheme, the Osage actually have legal claim to the land in U.S. court. So if the government wants the Osage to agree to this allotment, they have a few conditions. All the surplus land will actually be evenly distributed among Osage, not sold off by the U.S. government. And the private property will only apply to the surface of the land. They say all this land that we bought, we own everything under the surface. Basically, you guys can have the dirt, but anything underneath the dirt, that remains ours. So smart. Yeah. So smart. Genius. So whatever money was made from those mineral rights would be divided up evenly 
amongst the remaining 2,227 members of the tribe. And that share was called a headright. Now, headrights cannot be bought. They cannot be sold. They can only be inherited. So while allotted surface land might get sold off to settlers, the mineral rights stay within the Osage tribe. And the government, who is absolutely desperate for Oklahoma to join the Union, they agree. Little did they know that this dry land that they were negotiating over, it would become the largest oil deposit in the country. And those headrights would make the Osage tribe rich as hell. Molly was born in 1886, and oil was discovered in the region in the 1890s. And she and her three sisters, Anna, Rita, and Minnie, watched as this changed their entire life. So they grew up wearing traditional leggings and moccasins and blankets, and they lived in this small lodge, and they had Osage names. Their father sold pelts to traders and acted as a judge within the Osage tribe. Their mother, Lizzie, harvested corn and looked after the family. And Molly spent her early years doing chores, enjoying traditional dances, and playing water tag in the creek. When Molly was seven, she was forced to leave her parents in the town of Greyhorse to attend Catholic boarding school. There, she was forced to speak English, and she wasn't allowed to wear the traditional clothings of her tribe. She and her sisters also had white names thrust upon them. This is just like a disgusting time in American history. It's really just like they were just stripping the culture away from these American Indians. Absolutely. Um, By the time Molly finishes school, Osage County was changing at a really rapid clip. Uh, Thousands had flooded into the area to work on the newly erected oil rigs or in all these whiz-bang towns that had sprung up. What used to be a town filled with the sound of, I don't know, crickets, it's now filled with the hum of machinery. And the Osage, they're quickly becoming a minority on their own land. And their new white neighbors, surprise, surprise, not always so friendly. Their neighbors are upset because they resent the Osage people for these large checks that they are entitled on a quarterly basis. These headrights, as they are known, are a cut of the oil money extracted from the Osage communal land, that mineral land below the surface. And even, even with the strained cultural climate and, you know, the resentment that a lot of these white settlers had, Molly and her sisters adapt. By the time these sisters are, I don't know, around their 30s, they're really, they're walking a fine line between their Osage heritage and the Western world because they've been forced to assimilate to white culture from a very young age. And now they find themselves in a burgeoning industrial area. They go to speakeasies. They go to jazz clubs. They wear Western clothes. But Molly, she can't help but wonder if one of those resentful white settlers might have had something to do with Anna's murder. I mean, if that question that we posed, which is, you know, was it one of these resentful settlers that murdered Molly's sister? It's like, you can understand why she would think that, be it the, like, racist media coverage, the fact that the federal government has killed thousands of people, you know, I mean, it's like, that's a very obvious leap. It's a very obvious, not even a leap. That's an obvious step. 
I just imagine like it's not small town vibes anymore, but it's vibes of like we're talking about them going into speakeasies and jazz clubs. And I just have this like feeling that they're walking in and they like feel certain people looking with that like anger. It's interesting. It's an interesting and I I again I don't know what that feels like, but it's an interesting sort of thing because there also is so much power that they have because they have money, right? It's this mm-hmm. like really interesting sort of um conundrum, if you will. It's like the blatant racism in how the Osage Indians were discussed, both in the media and around town. And in addition, having the purse strings, having the money, having that power to wield is really interesting sort of paradox. Yeah, well, money only buys you so much power. And Mm -hmm. I think that the resentment is we're so mad you don't look like the person that should have the power. So what can we do to make you feel powerless? And that might be why she's suspecting them. After the funeral, local lawmen start asking Molly questions, and she tells them about the party, about Anna getting drunk there, and about Brian Burkhart and that white cowboy hat driving her home, and about her recent divorce from Oda Brown. Now, Brian had been absolutely adamant that he drove Anna straight home that night, and Molly has no reason not to believe him. I mean, this is her brother-in-law. It's her husband's brother. He's family. Anna's ex-husband, Oda, on the other hand, that guy, she's not really sure about him. Yeah, let me tell you about Oda. Oda Brown is a slender white man. He has reddish-brown hair and gray eyes. And he tells people he's a businessman. I, I don't know why I question it, but he does spend a lot of his time just hanging around boom towns like whiz bang, drinking, partying, whizzing, banging. I'm not seeing a lot of business. Oda and Anna had actually just gotten a divorce, like literally within days of her death. And it technically wasn't even in effect at this point, right? So the funeral was really hard on him. And he stood next to Molly and Ernest over Anna's grave. And he's listening to the older Osage mourners recite traditional prayer songs. But at a certain point, he becomes really, really distraught and he has to step away. Yeah, but Molly does wonder if this this distraughtness, this upset, is it because Anna died or is it because he lost the inheritance? Uh-huh. Because Anna, she yes, that's the question, right? Anna had a very sizable head right and technically their divorce hadn't gone through yet. So that means Oda might inherit it. But before she died, Anna had cut him out of her will And she changed it so that all the mineral trust would go to her mom, Lizzie. And Oda, who obviously wasn't happy about that, tried to contest the will, but it didn't go through. I don't know about you, but I see motive. (laughs) Um, I don't know if he had been left in the will. That had been better motive, frankly. Well, the fact that he contested it is suspicious, right? I mean, he's getting a divorce from this woman. He's not in the will. He contests it. All right, you're greedy. That's reason enough to kill someone. So Molly's suspicions of Oda are actually confirmed a couple of weeks after the funeral. This 28-year-old guy was arrested on forgery charges. He actually confesses that he shot and killed Anna at Oda's behest. He says that Oda paid him $8,000 to shoot Anna and then carry her body down to the creek. 
So the local authorities jump on this. They rush to arrest Oda. But within days of his arrest, they just send him right back home because they can't verify the claims of this forger. And judging by the fact that we keep calling him a forger and that's what we know about him, that seems on brand. There is no proof that he was anywhere near the reservation during this time. There's no proof that he was near Anna when the murder took place. And the sheriff says, look, there's a lot of talk, but you have to have proof, not talk. There is a part of me that wonders if if it was a white victim, would they have held on to him longer? But we can move on. As Anna's murder investigation stalls, Molly's mom, Lizzie, she gets sicker and sicker. And in July of 1921, all of the evidence in Anna's murder investigation gets locked away. The official death is listed on the death certificate as at the hands of parties unknown. And sadly, in that very same month, Lizzie, Molly's mom, dies. Molly is devastated. She's crushed the weight of these two deaths. Her mom, her sister, her other sister— all in the same span of time. This is enormous. And look, there's there's nothing she can do about her mom, about Lizzie, but she is damn well not going to let Anna's murderer get away with this. Maybe it's Oda, maybe it's Anna's ex, but maybe it's somebody else, and Molly is hell-bent on finding out. The good news is she is not alone. She has allies. She has her sister Rita's husband, Bill Smith, and he is also not letting this go. He thinks that someone did kill Anna for her money. And he doesn't think that Lizzie's sudden death is just a mere coincidence. He thinks that she's actually been poisoned. Okay, so we're going to talk about what Bill Smith does. But before I start singing his praises, I do want to be clear. This guy is no saint. He has not been an awesome husband to Rita. In fact, he gets drunk sometimes. And when he does, he gets violent. But... For now, what is happening is that Bill is going around town asking questions. And as a white man, he has a way better chance of getting answers than his wife Rita or Molly does. Another ally that Molly has is this guy William Hale. He's Ernest's uncle, and also he was friends with Anna. So he was actually pretty close with her. In fact, he was a pallbearer at her funeral. And he he's a guy with a lot of sway in this area. Hale is a self-made man. He actually grew up dirt poor, but he had lots of ambition. And for years, he's toiled on the windy plains. He's worked through heat waves. He's worked through hail until he's scraped together enough money and he starts his own cattle business. Money, money, here we come. And over the years, he swaps his dirty trousers and lower class life for a cowboy hat with a three-piece suit and a bow tie. Yes, his outfits change. His fortunes change. He has been a friend, though, always to the Osage, before even the oil industry took off. He donated to schools. He donated to hospitals. He even footed medical bills for folks that couldn't afford it. Basically, seems like a saint, right? And at a certain point, uh, he even started going by Reverend William K. Hale, which, you know, I, I don't know, not being religious myself, I'm like, sure, just grab that title. Nowadays, he's this successful rancher, and he's a pillar of this community. He even has an honorary deputy sheriff badge and sometimes carries not one, but two pistols. Wow. Fair and balanced. 
<laughs> He's actually known around these their parts as the king of the Osage Hills, and he is exactly the man that Molly needs to have on her side. Well, sure, of course. I think we all would like to have a hybrid reverend, rancher, sheriff king on our side. <laughs> but usually they just don't have time. They're too busy. They've got a lot of hobbies. Oh, so many things to do. <laughs> so much to do. So many badges and hats and costumes that they have to wear. <laughs> um, but let's talk strategy. There's no sense in them trying to get the sheriff to reopen this case because the sheriff, he he's known to be corrupt. He's always given free reign to gamblers, I don't know, bootleggers like old Kelsey Morrison. <laughs> Our fave, sheriff, our fave Kels. Our fave. This, this sheriff is actively under investigation by the Oklahoma Attorney General for failing to enforce the law. So he's not, he's not going to be any help. My gosh, she really can't trust anyone in law enforcement at this point. So while Bill, her brother-in-law, is doing his own investigating, Molly and Reverend Hale each offer a reward for any information on Anna's killer. And then they start to reach out to well-known private eyes to do the work that, wouldn't you know it, the local lawmen refuse to do. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So Molly, while she doesn't have the support of local authorities... She has the money. She has the means. She has her head right wealth. And I have to say, this is just so beyond messed up. But at this time, the government viewed American Indians as incompetent. So each Osage was designated a guardian who would control their estate. Many guardians were just some random local men who actually would use their ward's money to buy themselves cars and houses. Of course, this system was set up for a lot of corruption. But Molly's guardian is actually her husband, Ernest. So she has more control of her purse strings than many of her peers. And together, Molly and Ernest hire a handful of detectives. These detectives work for William Burns Detective Agency. William Burns... 
I don't know a lot about him. I know that he was said to have a mustache the size of a semi, which is very big. That sounds like his face felt very heavy. Arguably too large. Too too large. (laughs) Should have trimmed that thing. Where do you park it? He's got to be good at what he does because even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called him America's Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Reverend Hale, meanwhile, uses his own money to hire another PI from Kansas City named Elbert Pike. Great name. And in the following months, we now have this team of private eyes that everybody's hired, and they're going to embed themselves into the community to start searching for clues. One of the PIs actually goes to Anna's house, and the police, get this, this is wild, the police never actually searched it after she was found dead. So it is left exactly as it did the night she disappeared, which is a treasure trove to anyone trying to investigate, right? There, they actually find Anna's alligator purse that she brought with her to the luncheon. So that means we know that Anna did go home right after the luncheon, at least for a little bit. So Brian Burkhart was telling the truth. He did drop her off. Another private eye finds that someone called Anna's house that same night from Ralston, which is a town six miles away from Greyhorse, and it seems like she answered the phone. So then you've got to wonder, did the killer call her and invite her out? Another PI questions Anna's cab driver who dropped her off earlier at the luncheon. He says that Anna apparently told him that she was expecting a little baby. Was Anna pregnant? And who was the father? Was was that the motive behind her death? Was it, in fact, Oda, her ex-husband? We don't know. No, but a PI tracks Oda down, and Oda's with his new wife in a new town far away from Greyhorse. Well, he moved on and so, quick. Yeah. The PI trying to be sly is just like, oh, let's make some casual conversation. By the way, can we talk about Anna's murder? Doesn't sound that casual. <laughs> This guy's Um, bad at small talk. Yeah. But he's trying to get Oda to reveal something. It doesn't really work. Oda maintains his innocence, and he says that he was with another woman the night that Anna was killed. Another PI finds yet another suspect. There's this woman. Her name is Rose Osage, and rumor has it that she killed Anna for flirting with her husband, Joe. In a signed statement, an unknown woman writes that Anna had tried to seduce Joe. And Rose, who was known to be jealous and violent, she shot Anna at the top of her head. And Joe and Rose then drove Anna's body to the Three Mile Creek and dumped it as well as their bloodstained clothes. Um, It's sort of, you know, at the outset sounds promising, but there's no proof to corroborate this story. No one else heard this rumor, and no discarded bloody clothes were found anywhere. So you start to wonder about this woman, if she just, I don't know, had it in for Rose, or they were offering a reward for information, and maybe that's what she was after. Yeah, if they let the guy who said he did it go, I probably, I can assume they probably weren't going to hold the people that somebody else said did it. Just a thought. By the winter of 1922, the privatized investigations are at a complete impasse. Reverend Hale's P.I. Pike, he hasn't turned up anything helpful at all. And the handful of other leads from the other P.I.s, they don't go anywhere. And as 1923 rolls around, Molly is left still with no answers. But I hate to say it, things are about to get even worse in Osage County. It's going to get worse for her? How could it possibly get worse? She's lost, like, her whole family. 
She has no one advocating for her. It's like, oh, it is not been a cakewalk so far. No, and also the fact that Pike didn't come up, Hale's PI didn't come up with anything. Yeah, I wonder if you get your money back when you hire a PI like that, and they (laughs) they bring you back nothing. But you got to say for the PIs. Uh, this is not an easy job when, um, you know, the neighbors are using it as an opportunity to try to, like, get each other in trouble. Like, we've got this woman being like, you know, Rose. And you're like, that is not helpful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, also, it's like, there was the person who confessed to the police that, like, hey, I got hired by Oda to kill her. And the police were like, eh, not enough proof. It's like this for sure signed statement isn't going to be enough proof either. It's like a little bit like it's twofold. It's like these PIs are like, how much do we really trust them? Right. How much do we trust these like eyewitnesses? And also like the police need this. Like we're also up against like needing this like burden of proof to put away a white man, frankly. And it's just so sad that it's like. The only reason this is happening is because Molly is advocating for her and her family. The only reason. Otherwise, and on her own dime. That's the other thing. Like, there's another version of this story where um, she's, you know, doesn't have barrels of money. And her sister dies and the police are not doing their job. And at the end of the day, you go, well, that's the only thing I can do. You know, here we are talking about the Osage tribe. And I think the reason we're talking about it in this moment is because they had money and they were able to put that money towards an investigation. How many other reservations did this exact thing happen? Did murders happen? And it went unsolved, uninvestigated, unattended to because, you know, people didn't care enough. And I think, you know, it stinks that the only reason we're talking about this is because I think Molly has money, is because of the head rights that was set up within the Osage County Shortly after the P.I.s closed shop, with no answers, the deaths of the Osage Indians just start multiplying. In February of 1923, an Osage man comes home sick and a few hours later is dead. It looks like he might have been poisoned by strychnine, which is a horrible way to die. It is a painful poison that causes your body to convulse But because the authorities don't bother doing a toxicology report, it is impossible to know if he was murdered or just had a bad batch of moonshine. In March, another Osage woman is found dead from what looks like a blatant poisoning. But yet again, the local authorities don't investigate. In July, another Osage man takes a sip of whiskey. He begins frothing at the mouth and collapses. He dies shortly after, and he leaves behind six children. And again, no investigation. As this death toll continues to climb, the Osage decide they've got to take things into their own hands. Some members of the tribe beseech a white-haired oil baron named Barney McBride, you got to go to Washington on our behalf. Because Barney, he's considered friendly to the Osage. He'd been married to a Creek woman before she passed away, and now he's raising his American Indian stepdaughter. And Barney agrees to go. It's obvious that federal intervention is the only way that these murders are going to stop. The local authorities are absolutely useless. But when Barney arrives in D.C., it becomes clear just how long of a reach the bad guys have. No sooner has Barney arrived in D.C. than he is abducted and killed. On August 10th, 1922, Barney's body is found naked 
covered in stab wounds. And the brutality of this murder conveys a message that is crystal clear. Stop digging. What is so tragic is that Barney died in vain. His trip to D.C. did not succeed, and he was not able to get federal authorities involved. You know, I hesitate to use the term luckily, so I'll say unluckily, or rather uh, horribly, the next series of crimes that occur in Osage County will demand their attention. But they will also demolish Molly's remaining family. On March 10th, 1923, a loud noise, almost like thunder, jolts Molly awake. She rises from bed and goes to the window, and in the distance, she can see a fire blazing. Molly is absolutely horrified. Ernest wakes up and sees this glowing light outside. He throws on a bathrobe and runs outside to find the source of it. Outside, dozens of stunned people have the same idea. They've gathered, asking themselves, what's that enormous sound? What's on fire? Then he hears it's Bill Smith's house. And as Ernest gets closer to the light, he realizes what's occurred. Bill and Rita Smith's two-story house has been completely razed. There must have been some kind of explosion. Where there was a house, there is now just charred rubble. Volunteer firemen carry buckets of water through shards of glass and twisted metal. When the water meets the heat, steam and black smoke billow into the night sky. The town folk of Osage County, Oklahoma, search through the dark haze for any sign of Rita and her husband, Bill, along with their servants. Then someone hears the impossible. A man crying, help, help. Still lying in his bed is a horribly burned Bill Smith. Rita's still in her nightgown beside him and she looks asleep, but it is very clear that she is dead. Over the next few days, Bill fights for his life. A nurse and the Schoen brothers, the local doctors, they tend to him. They try to help, but there's not much they can do. He's horribly burned. And while Bill flits in and out of consciousness in the hospital, newspapers outside Oklahoma write about this tragic disaster in Osage County. A few mysterious deaths is one thing, but a house exploding? That's national news. And soon the images of the charred wreckage of the Smith home will finally gain the attention of federal authorities in D.C. But not soon enough. Not before another victim loses his life. Bill doesn't last more than a few days after the explosion. But before he succumbs to his injuries, he makes one last telling statement. When his lawyer visits his hospital bed, Bill tells him, You know... I only had two enemies in the world, Reverend William K. Hale, the King of the Osage Hills, and Ernest Burkhart. Next week on Crime of a Lifetime. Molly's husband, Ernest, and her greatest ally, Reverend Hale, stand accused in the murder of Rita and Bill. The two people she trusted above all others could be conspiring against her. But why? And how? And who else could be involved? Molly is desperate for answers, even as she grows weaker by the day. When a team of federal investigators come to Osage County, they find a community full of fear and lies. Things aren't at all what they seem. Will Molly live to see answers? 
or will she die before they unravel the conspiracy? Find out next week on Crime of a Lifetime. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We use many sources for this episode, but two that we would recommend is David Grant's award-winning book, Killers of the Flower Moon. Grant drew from the FBI files, historians, and interviews with the descendants of Osage living during the Reign of Terror. We also drew from The Death of Sybil Bolton, an American History, by Dennis McAuliffe. Dennis is a former Washington Post reporter who discovered that his grandmother had mysteriously died during the Reign of Terror. His book does an amazing job of explaining the insidiousness of the Osage Guardianship Program. Lastly, we'd highly recommend the PBS short film, Osage Murders, produced by a native-owned production company based out of Oklahoma. It's a documentary, two decades in the making, and features interviews with members of the Osage tribe about the legacy of the Reign of Terror. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hansdale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2022, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.